It was an old hymn. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Would you pray with me? Father, in light of um, all that's going on around us, in light of friends and family who are suffering even now, Lord, in light of those that we know and love that are near us but far from you, Lord, we cry out that you would, in fact, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you'll say through the teaching of your word this morning as we have sung your truth uh, quite well already. And our voices lifted together. Nothing like it. Nothing like the sound. I love it. Lord, we pray that our worship continues now as we preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Just before I start the message, a quick shout out to uh, so many that work behind the scenes to make every week at Grace Covenant a possibility. Uh, Just the fact that things get cleaned and taken care of and bills get paid and uh, the lights are on when you get here and buildings are unlocked. Um, I'm sure there's an app for that, but we can't afford it, so we use people and we will always use people and God uses people to do these things and I'm grateful for every deacon that serves, every um, church member and family member that just serves so well and so beautifully. One further shout out, we don't normally do this, but I've got the microphone, I thought I would. Happy birthday, Daniel. Yeah, it's his birthday today, so uh, happy birthday, Daniel. And that's all I can do. I have to move on now. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 5, and we continue this series on being counterculture, looking at the Sermon in the Mount, countercultural living, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching from Matthew 5 to the first little bit of Matthew 8. Last week, the Beatitudes, the preamble. This week, of course... We continue on with that passage Jeremy just read. One of the heartbeats of our society and the day in which we live today is this thing called personal autonomy. It it means, at this stage of the game, it means being a law unto oneself. In a recent essay, Dr. Albert Moeller wrote, the modern age has exploded the claim of autonomy. A part of the modern age is a claim of virtually sovereign self-government We have become laws unto ourselves, and this kind of expressive individualism is one of the viruses that has so transformed modern society. You've heard me speak of it often from here, different, not as eloquent language as that, uh, but I've called it hyper-individualism. It's a concept with the new mantra of this age of entitlement that we live in, where We touched on it last week when we looked at the new American dream and how it's been redefined for this nation. And one of the things was being independent with a sense of absolute control over everything we touch. Well, that's a fallacy. That doesn't exist. That's an idealistic, I mean, just quandary there because it's not possible. I'm afraid that traces of this thinking, though, can sneak into our thinking as Christians and certainly into churches. Not too long ago, it was normal to say that there are two things that you don't bring up in polite conversation. One was, can anybody guess? 
politics, right? Guess that's over with, right? It's kind of like coughing with public. You're done with that, right? The other was religion. Yeah, politics and religion. Well, we've certainly abandoned the polite, well, we, we virtually abandoned polite conversation anyway, but we've certainly abandoned that adage, you know, don't bring up politics or religion. That's all we bring up now is politics. We insert it into every conversation uh, that we can almost. But we somehow have relegated Christianity to something that's private. And that's, you know, I don't want to push that on anybody. If I could quote the famed philosopher Willy Wonka, I would say strike that, reverse it. How about bringing up Christianity all the time and um, letting the pundits do all the jawjacking on politics. If we reflect on the light and the beauty and the hope and the promise of the Beatitudes that we spent time on last week, we find we're challenged, we're even compelled to live those out loud. We're clearly called and equipped and even inspired to live differently than the culture around us if we follow Jesus. We're clearly called, equipped, and inspired to think differently and certainly to speak differently than the culture around us if we follow Jesus. The Bible says in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's impossible to live out the Beatitudes in private. It's not possible. (laughs) It's impossible to live out these eight norms of the kingdom in a way that isn't spectacularly social and outward. That's probably why Christ transitions to these two everyday essential metaphors that illustrate just how disciples should relate to the world. Jesus here is calling his disciples to be salt and light. I want to spend just a moment and talk about salt, and then I'll give you a few points this morning on being salt and light to the world around us. Matthew 5, 13, he said, you're the salt of the earth. Let's talk about salt. There are several uses for salt, but in the early days of the Bible, I know you've heard this. I was thinking about this. I've heard this all my life when anybody comes to this text, right? Every preacher, it's in all the notes. You can't find any notes that it's not in, but it's so different from our modern age. Salt was used as a preservative, right? I know that you know that. Indulge me for just a moment because I did find a journal from a missionary um, in the last 50 to 75 years that was serving in a remote part of the world that still didn't have refrigeration and spoke to this with some detail. It's intriguing, it's kind of gross. Just a heads up for all my gross lovers, it's coming, okay. Um, But there are no ice makers, no refrigerators in the Bible days. Now think about that. My grandparents were not wealthy at all, but they had a refrigerator in the kitchen and a freezer in another part of the house. They had it in the uh, connecting thing to the garage, right? Uh, both sets of grandparents. One were, uh, worked in the mill all their lives. To quote my grandpa, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. I don't know why you'd rub two nickels together. He didn't have them. But they still had a freezer to store meat in. So even in recent history with much less affluent times, it's still difficult for us to imagine no refrigeration. Um, they used salt and saline solutions to preserve meats It was the only way they could. In fact, this was used late into the 20th century 
in remote parts of the world. Hear this pioneer missionary describe it. He says it was absolutely imperative. Under high temperatures and hot weather in the region, decay and decomposition of meat was astonishingly rapid. We had no winter weather or cool frosty nights to chill the flesh. Besides this, take a deep breath, the swarms of ubiquitous flies soon hovered over the butchered carcasses. The only way to prevent them from ruining the meat was to soak the slabs in a strong solution of salt. So meat was life-giving because it preserved. Meat was also, or salt was also a condiment. Um, salt was also a condiment. Of course, it was used to flavor. Even Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, I think this may have been my mother-in-law's life verse. Actually, I found another life verse for our precious Willene, who's in heaven now. Job 6.6, 6, you ready for it? Here's the first part. Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Right? This woman would grab the salt shaker first. Like, as we're praying, she would salt. No, I'm just kidding. She would pray with us. But I remember her salting sometimes before she would taste, and she broke that habit later on. But some of you have that tendency. Nobody at Grace, but you know people like that. They sit down at the table, and they grab the salt, and they go to town before they've tasted anything. You're like, what are you doing? You know, as a parent, I'm wondering, as the cook in the kitchen, I'm wondering if you ever attempted to oversalt that portion of that person's food just to teach them a lesson so they know... I don't know. Anyway, salt flavors. It enhances. Job knew that from early on. For either case, for salt to work as a preservative or a flavor, watch this, it has to come into contact. It doesn't preserve unless it comes into contact with the meat it's trying to preserve. It doesn't flavor anything unless it comes into contact. The, the chemical reaction doesn't pl take place otherwise. All right, now the imperative. You ready? Number one, Jesus is saying, be salt in a world of decay. Be salt in a world of decay. Well, that sounds good, preacher, but what does that look like? I think I'm going to kind of give it away a little bit. Spoiler alert. I think salt has to do with our conduct, our character, and light has to do with our actions. That's kind of my angle this morning, and I, I think the text supports that. Be salt in a world of decay. This world, apart from Christ, tends toward decomposition. It's not difficult to see the moral decay all around us. You don't have to search the headlines anymore. They come to you. And you can see that moral decay is all around us. With our Bibles open and scripture memory helping us to hide God's word in our heart, we recognize sin and its sinister effect on everything. We as Christians should actively seek to prevent decay and corruption around us. As we were watching a myriad of specials this week on 9-11, as I'm sure some of you were, we, we were struck by the language of a younger generation who wouldn't call evil evil and said, well, it must have been, you know, people will do crazy things if they don't have access to good mental health. And that is an accurate statement. I'm not going to underline that statement, but, but I am going to say this. We understand with our Bibles open that sinful people do sinful things and evil things. And it's not just a mental issue or instability that causes that. We're, it's clear in Scripture. A biblical worldview demands moral accountability. The humanistic age in which we live in is a therapeutic humanistic age that wants to explain away everything 
from the core belief that man is essentially and always good. And that's just not what the Bible says. In fact, some of the words of Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in this world you shall have tribulation. He promised that the world was a world of decay. 2 Timothy 2, in the last days, people will be lovers of self. 2 Timothy 3, that is. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 2 Peter 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now before you tap your neighbor and say, I thought he said he was going to encourage us this morning, hold on. This is what the world looks like without Christ. This is not a description of the church. (laughs) This is a description of the world around us. It is a festering, putrefying world. But it began as a perfect creation. Sin is the problem. You and I choose to sin. We choose to go our own way. We choose to rebel against a holy and righteous God. And God in His infinite mercy and loving kindness sent His only Son to be the Savior of the world. While we were yet sinners contributing to the decay and decomposition, Christ died for us. What? He loves us. He's called us into a living relationship with Himself. And He looks at the church and He says this, Be salt. Slow the decay around you by just being my disciple. We're to actively seek to slow that decay around us by living out those beatitudes. We also are to actively flavor the world around us as salt. So we slow the decay and we flavor the world around us. Now some of you don't go out and buy a t-shirt that says be salty. Give me a, give me a break a little bit, okay? We actively flavor the world around us. But to show you how inept I can be at times, right? Not just with the sports, but with the other things. Um, I kept seeing these little things on cars saying salt life. And I told Ashley, I said, isn't that brilliant? This is years ago. I said, that's so awesome. People are like, I want to be salt and be life, be light to a lost and dying world. She says, honey, that has to do with fishing. That's not, that's not what you think it is. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I don't know anything. Um, we've only focused on two primary uses for salt, but I want to remind you that salt, it's been reported, purifies, it preserves, it flavors, it heals, it also creates thirst. And when we live on purpose our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, when we live our lives as the Bible directs us, as the Holy Spirit leads us and fills us, whether you're a teenager in school, whether you are in late elementary, or whether you are a senior lead on your job, whether you are a homemaker at home helping to educate and lead the home, whatever your role is, when we follow God's way, we flavor the world around us. And we do it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chinese missionary Eric Liddell was an incredible illustration of this. During the last years of his life, he was a prisoner of war of the Japanese. And he served in a Chinese prison camp. 
fellow missionary David Mitchell said this of Liddell. He said, His faithful and cheerful support made the difference for many in the camp. Otherwise, they would not have survived. Prisoner of war, final days, his faithful and cheerful support. Mitchell, this missionary, asked himself, I wonder what his secret was, and he came to this conclusion. He was unreservedly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory would study the Bible and they would talk with God for about an hour. As a Christian, Eric Liddell's desire was to know God more deeply and as a missionary, it was to make him known more fully. And he did this in life and death. Faithful, cheerful support. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived. Salt's ability to purify, preserve, flavor, heal, and create thirst is directly connected to its potency. If you look back, I, I don't know if I have it up on the screen, Mark, but back at Matthew 5, 13, Jesus makes a statement there, and he says... But when salt loses its flavor, look back at your text in Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew 5, 13. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Under feet. Now the picture here of under feet is thrown out into the road, which is also where they threw their human waste. So it's useless. That's about as useless as you can get, right? Does salt lose its taste? Well, what he's saying here is when it's so diluted with other elements. Salt can be diluted to such a point, it could be mixed with so many other elements or compounds to such a degree that it becomes indistinguishable. Here's the caution from the Lord this morning. Playing fast and loose with sin will not enhance your saltiness. Mixing with the seduction of materialism or adding elements of political expediency or unwholesome talk or worldly morals or foolish actions is a recipe that all but eliminates salt's saltiness. Seeing how close you can live to the world and still be a Christian is a recipe for disaster in your walk with Christ and in your influence with others. Brothers and sisters, beloved, in a day when so many of the lines are blurred and identity is being blurred on a regular basis god help us to be the men and the women of god who belong to jesus and conduct our lives as royal descendants of a king as ambassadors of hope as the salt of the earth slowing the decay and flavoring the life around us be salt in a world of decay number two be light in a world of darkness. Be light in a world of darkness. You don't get rid of darkness in a room by trying to push the darkness out. You get rid of darkness by turning the light on. Jesus said of himself in John chapter number eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He is the light of the world. He tells us, you are the light of the world. There's no conflict there. He's the source. We have him living in us through the person of the Holy Spirit.
I'm familiar with the old illustration that he's the sun and we're like the moon, and that's good to a point, but the reality is we're not just a reflection of Christ. We have the living God living inside of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is that creative force of the third person of the Trinity of God in us. The word is the same, phos. Jesus said, I am the light, you're the light. From the Old Testament, New Testament light, there's such a rich background when it comes to light. Light meant revelation, it meant instruction, hope, joy, righteousness, it means salvation. Isaiah would describe the Messiah in Isaiah 49 as the light for the nations that salvation may reach the end of the earth. It's a powerful and personal statement, isn't it? You, you are the light of the world. You are. Me? You. You're the light of the world. He gives two further illustrations to help unpack that. Like a city on a hill and like a lamp in a house. Very quickly this morning, like a city on a hill, I would say that light reveals darkness. Now, this is a hard concept for us to get because we have so much light. This sounds weird. Pollution. <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago, the Perseid meteor shower. Did any of my space nerds go out and look at that? It's, so the meteor shower was up. We, I think, fell asleep. We, we've caught it a couple years past. Chase, I think Chase got out. He's seen most of them, but we, um, it's this meteor shower that's awesome, right? You can, like this, right? It's great when it's, when it's really lit up. The problem is getting in a place that's dark enough so that you can see that, right? Because there's street lights everywhere. There's city light everywhere. There's all these lights. There's a new thing, and I'm, I'm, I may butcher the phrase here. I should have looked it up before I said this. I thought somebody here was telling me they went to a light preserve recently or a, a natural sky preserve or a dark preserve, something like that. Anyway, it's a place. There are a few places in the country where you can get to absolute darkness, where there's no city lights or other ambient light that have in infects the area or affects your view so you can see everything going on pretty clearly it's pretty remarkable that we have these preserves so it's difficult for us to envision that a city on a hill would be something that would be like light and would expose darkness but imagine that imagine being i don't know in the mountains blue ridge mountains north carolina you're in those valleys you're looking up there's no cities around but there's one city perched on the crest of a hill that's the picture here and the street lamps just flickering with gas flames oil flames are lighting up and you can see the city and you can see the darkness around it. Like a city on a hill, Jesus has called us to light it up. Spurgeon would say it much better than my pitiful illustration I just gave. He says, Christ has lighted us that we might enlighten the world. God intends his grace to be as conspicuous as a city built on a mountain's brow. A glowing city on the crest of a mountain in a day with very little constant light would stand out in the valleys and in the hills around. And Christ is calling us to be that kind of light, to expose and reveal the darkness around us. In Matthew 5, 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand that it might give light to all of those in the house, the second point under light is this. It's the final point. Like a lamp in a house, light also repels darkness and reveals the truth. Most of us don't use lamps for this reason. We use it for indirect lighting and accent lighting. And, you know, oh, company's coming over. Turn that one on and this one on. Don't turn that one on. That one's ugly. 
Why, are the, why is the overhead light on and the lamps on? Let's, let's fix this, right? The, the feng shui is off, whatever, I don't know. That's, I don't know much, y'all, I know how to preach, that's about it. So um, here's what happens. We turn on the light so we can see what's going on in a room. If, if, uh, if you have children or you've ever been around children and your children have one Lego, I promise you will find it if the light is off, right? Because you will step on it. They were built to impale the feet of parents. There are other toys like that, matchbox cars, uh, insert any kind of toy that you can think of. Um, they're, they're just vicious little instruments of torture. When the light is off, now, I can't help you if you turn the light on and you see them and you still step on them, right? I can't, I can't help you there. But we turn the light on to see what's going on to dispel the darkness. The primary function of lighting in a home is to repel darkness and to reveal what's actually there. Jesus says, you don't light a lamp to immediately cover it up and expect anything. You don't take all the bulbs out of everything in the house and then flip the switches and expect anything to happen. That's not the way anything works. We were saved not to live private, hidden lives as secret disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ has lit us ablaze with his glory and says, now go light up the world around you. Can I just read for you a passage as I'm just about to land this plane here? John 3, I'm going to start with verse 16. You know this. But I'd like to give you the context. Just the following verses around John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, watch this, that light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The love of Christ compels us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in such a way with our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and our families, even our acquaintances. We want them to come to us and say, twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. First Peter 3.15. When people come and ask you for the reason for the hope that you have, how can they ask you if they can't see it? So how do we shine the light? Political involvement? How's that working for us? Street evangelism? Not knocking it. It can be effective. How does Jesus say we do it in the text here? Matthew 5, what does he say here? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now, we're not saved by good works, but saved people do good works. When you love others, even our enemies, the world sees the light of the gospel. When we pray and respect those in authority, when we pray for and respect those in authority, even when we disagree with them, the world sees the light of the gospel. When we give generously to those in need, the world sees the light of the gospel. When we control our anger, our lust, our lies, 
the world sees the light of the gospel. When we trust the Lord to provide in trying times, the world sees the light of the gospel. And when we stand in the gap for the voiceless and the vulnerable, actually doing something good for marginalized students, actually doing something for incarcerated women, actually doing something in our neighborhoods. It's as though we become like Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai and his face was aglow with the glory of God. Let your light shine because you are light and you are salt. Christ is calling us. Be salt be light, because the world is dark and decaying. And you don't have to subscribe to the news feeds anymore to figure that out. If we're salt and light, I think the world will take one of two extremes in response. They'll either revile us, that's pleasant, or they'll repent. Now, I know there's a lot in the middle there, but those are the two extreme responses I think they'll have. They may persecute you while you're being salt and light. Jesus just came out of that, didn't he? Flowed right out of persecution into salt and light. They may utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, just as Jesus said leaving, leading into this text. We should rejoice and be glad if that extreme happens. He commanded us to rejoice and be glad. <laughs> but in verse 16, we just read it, they might catch the hope of the other extreme. They might turn from their rebellion against God and glorify God. We should rejoice and be glad if that happens. Be salt, be light, and rejoice regardless of what happens. I'm gonna ask Julia to come back and sit at the piano for just a moment to play that we might respond to the text this morning. Peter would recall this as the Holy Spirit was filling him and causing him to write scripture. In 1 Peter 2, I'm fairly certain, and I think you'll agree, he had this sermon in mind, this teaching in mind, as he recorded these words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, wow, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Watch this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this age of hyper-individualism where people want to be laws unto themselves, the result has been an increasing in decay and darkness. Christ is calling us to be salt. Christ is calling us to be light. That's counterculture living at its most fundamental level. I don't normally invoke this phrase, but this morning I'm asking just at a point of reverence with heads bowed, and eyes closed this morning. Julia's just about to play. Here's my question to you, beloved brother or sister. What's keeping you from being salt? What's keeping you from shining your light for Jesus? Is it fear of man? Is it pride? Is it sin?
Is it your comfort, peer pressure? Is it your own ambition or agenda? God, help us to lay those things down today to leave as salt and light. Let's pray. Father, you've called us to be salt and light, so we want to go season and shine so that the world might see you. Lord, we love you. We worship you in spirit and truth, Father. We thank you for this day in Christ's name. Let the church say amen. Let's stand together and lift our voices.